0: Thank you Banthi. I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. I had every intention of being at the center today. But my wife has been watching the uh, weather very closely the last couple days and she asked me last night are you gonna go to ibmc tomorrow and i said i don't know I, i think so but you know i guess we'll just see what it looks like in the morning and this morning she woke up looked out the window saw that it was raining she looked back at me and said you're not going it's too wet outside and i said fine so I let Bante know that I'd be giving my talk today, from my home, safe and sound. You can see my bookcase behind me. I have a image of the Buddha up on top of my bookcase. I also have my cleaning supplies right next to right next to my bookcase because we have a small apartment. So you can see my vacuum and my my broom and everything. So quite playfully, I like to think. Well, some people say cleanliness is next to godliness. I got cleanliness next to mindfulness, I suppose. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm home, safe and sound. And I, and I guess um, that's a good thing. I, I realized that just as we were getting started with the Sunday service, I got uh, a warning on my phone, on my cell phone, imminent severe storm kind of stuff, saying not to travel unless it's an emergency, you know, leaving a, a flooded area or following some evacuation plan. So here we are. So I hope that everyone uh, is safe and sound today here in the Los Angeles area, and of course all over Southern California and anywhere else impacted by this tropical storm. But yeah, here we are dealing with something kind of different. I will say that right now in my area, it's not so bad. It, it seems to be sprinkling mostly. It's raining off and on, and you know we live in a hilly area, so some of the streets are already seeing some water build up as the storm drains you know, reach capacity. So we'll see how the rest of the day goes on. They say to watch out for uh, flooding until about 6 p.m. this, you know, this afternoon, this evening. All right, so let's, now that I've addressed the immediate concern and the news, I suppose I'll start my talk. So some of you may know that uh, I'm beginning my Ph.D. program in Religious Studies. And it's something that I've wanted to do for... Uh, a long time now, and it's something that I thought maybe I wasn't going to do, mostly because I had a lot of people in my life telling me it might be a little impractical to do. But I'm in a position in my life now where it's it seems worthwhile and, and pretty straightforward, so here I am, beginning bright and early tomorrow morning, Monday. I'll be taking my first Sanskrit class. That should be very interesting for me. I've studied a lot of Pali, but I haven't really studied Sanskrit, so it'll be new. And so in the weeks following, you know, or rather in the weeks leading up to beginning the program, you'd think maybe I'd be uh, reading some texts to kind of prepare and start thinking about dissertation stuff. But, hey, i got to admit, the last couple weeks, I've mostly just been spending time with my wife in any free time I've had because, you know, she's recognizing that I'm going to be pretty busy. So she's wanted to have some more time with me. And what that's partially meant is... uh, You know, sitting around watching a little bit of TV, a little bit of YouTube, Netflix, and stuff like that, which is fine. And if you're someone with my kind of tastes, you know, the algorithm on YouTube ends up showing you a lot of spiritual stuff. No surprise. Various things on Buddhism and New Age stuff and meditation and whatnot. And what will sometimes pop up are also these, you know, kind of expose documentaries. And I'll admit to having a, a kind of a morbid fascination with those. You know, I, I end up watching those just because it, you know, it always I always find it shocking and a, and a bit sad. And I, I suppose I look at them as as cautionary tales. So I end up watching them. And a few days ago, one of those exposes ended up showing up on my on my feed, uh, my recommendations, and my wife saw it and was like, "Oh." we should watch that one and i said fine now i'm not going to uh, say the name of of who this was about because it was about one figure it was kind of a, a cultish leader type um, but i will i will likely end up sharing enough details that if you kind of if you follow this kind of stuff you'll probably figure out who it is but i'm not going to share the name just because I, i'm not really in the business of of disparaging this person or or ridiculing this person more sharing the the cautions of it and building some lessons from the story, and that's about it. But I will likely share some stuff that I, I can't I can't help but but reveal some of these things. So if you know who he is, you'll you'll know who he is, uh, just because of why we clicked on it in the first place. Because this guy, being uh, putting himself out there, he's a Western white guy putting himself out there as a master Zen teacher. This this popular photo of him is with his very blonde you know, willowy kind of uh, afro that he had going on with the the backlighting in the photo so his, his afro looks like it's glowing so it's as if he has a halo. And it was my wife that saw that and she said, ooh, let's watch that one. And so we did. And the story that unfolded in this documentary is uh, sadly kind of common, really. You know, it, here's this guy who, um, you know, was... Uh, a professor at a university had an interest in spirituality religion we're talking sometime in the 60s and 70s he starts uh attending this group that is hindu based it has a guru there's this big figure that he's following he works his way up the ranks and he ends up becoming sort of like a a recruiter for this guy you know in the 1970s uh so i'm told because you know this is before me Uh, You know, it would be quite common to find a lot of spiritual groups going to universities and um, promoting themselves and inviting students to come to these meditations and get involved with various, you know, rituals and ceremonies. And, you know, there's a lot of just sort of uh, spiritual pluralism happening on campus as as people get interested in various things. And so this guy, already being a, a university professor, has away with university students he knows how to be charismatic he knows how to hold their attention he gives good lectures and so he ends up being a recruiter for his guru and he puts on a good show for these students who show up and the the event is free they get to learn about some meditation and everything but this this guy ends up realizing that he kind of likes the attention he's getting being a recruiter and he starts deciding that like well maybe i'm the teacher though And so he starts building this narrative that he starts sharing with some of these students that, well, yeah, you know, the the teacher that we have, he's cool, but, you know, I'm starting to really doubt if this guy's actually enlightened. I think maybe I'm the enlightened one. And more than that, I think that all of you guys who came across me first, in past lives, you were all my students. So, you know, to continue on our spiritual journey, you should come along with me and we can continue this lifetimes-long relationship we've had because as you all know, me an enlightened being, you're the only w- I'm the only way you're gonna get enlightened too because I've got my special energy I'm gonna give you. And so that ends up being the way he, he starts off. He breaks away from this Hindu guru with a bunch of the students or a handful of the students, all of them believing to some capacity that he's been their teacher across multiple lifetimes. And the lifetimes that this guy has are lifetimes where he's been, you know, a, a Zen teacher, a Tibetan teacher, and all a lot of Buddhist lifetimes that he supposedly had. So that he ends up propping himself up as a as a Zen master, and from there <clears throat> he builds on this the same sort of guru relationship, but. Even more so he he believes that he's teaching American Buddhism, which is not the the begging bowl type you find in the East. no, this is a a new hip American Buddhism where everyone makes a lot of money and does a lot of stuff and can have a lot of sex and do all these things and primarily make a lot of money so that they can give him a lot of money. He ends up being a millionaire and can buy all these nice homes and everything and uh yeah, know, the, the narrative of, of abuse is very obvious in the rest of the documentary that I saw where he, he does a lot of the stuff you'd expect. You know, a lot of abuses of a pow- of power, um, you know, breaking trust with people, um, doing a lot of drugs himself and getting caught in a lot of things. And unfortunately, you know, his, his life ends up ending with him ending it himself. He was found with quite a lot of drugs in his system and I think he had drowned and everything. He had jumped into some lake, and it seems like it was intentional. You know, the the way a lot of young people put it today, he uh, had chosen to unsubscribe from life. And so, I, you know, I, I watched the the whole documentary and, and realizing, like, wow, it's, it's really sad how uh, common a story this is. You know, not just in the United States. You know, there's a lot of cultic figures that have existed everywhere. But it's one of those things where you watch that and you're just like, wow, man, like... It kind of makes sense why a lot of younger people these days and a lot of older people these days are are very um let's say suspicious of organized religion as a whole or religion or spirituality at all and so i started thinking about something that has been percolating in the back of my mind for a while i, I wouldn't say that what I want to talk about today only sprung from this documentary. It, it didn't. But I have noticed that even within my own lifetime as someone practicing Buddhism, and then in the last, I don't know, uh, seven years or so of, of, of being in a teaching position myself, there has been, in some cases that I've noticed, a sort of embarrassment uh, in regard to Buddhism as possibly a religion. This kind of concern that you know, if if Buddhism exists as a religion, that it might be compared to these kind of religious groups, these cultic groups out there. Or if, even if not that, that by being a religion, it's it's something that's superstitious and therefore not useful. And then I've also seen this too, even on the academic side of being someone who wants to have a, a doctoral degree, who wants to to teach and and publish academically there, you know, within scholasticism, within academia, there is this weird tension even in religious studies uh, between religion and science. I I think that many people across the world today, we, we live believing this kind of dichotomy, that there is a dichotomy between religion and science and you're either in one camp or you're in the other because one of them has to be true or have the real truth, one truer over the other. And, and I, I can see why, especially in the United States, but also a lot of other places, there, there, is that, there is that story there, that people are believing that in one way, that you have very secular-minded people on the science side, and you have religious people who are suspicious of science in various ways, and you just see this, this, this weird not even debate sometimes it feels like a culture war i think probably because it is one but that culture war has affected all religions and including buddhism who you know rather is in this weird spot now where we we have a lot of people not even wanting to call buddhism a religion there's a real fear around that and so to me it can be quite troubling sometimes to see various teachers pointing out like oh well you know, don't even call yourself Buddhist because you know who wants to be called that. I'm like, well, okay. And then also just being kind of nervous around even teaching things like karma, teaching things like rebirth, or even talking about meditation as something that leads towards uh, nibbana, nirvana, leads towards awakening and release. Even recently, and I, I wasn't expecting to find this, someone that I that I know is who. Um, you know, is, is a good teacher, is now promoting, you know, uh, mindfulness of breathing, not as something that that leads to uh, development in the mind, leads to cultivation that ultimately leads to disenchantment and dispassion, but rather is taking on the language of, of psychotherapy and calling it instead something that is uh, an effective coping strategy. And so I do see that a lot now these days too that there is this desire to take on a lot of a lot of the terminology of of psychotherapy and and lay it on to, to Buddhism as distinct and different from other religions it's a whole science it's not religion I think what be really concerning thinking about this as someone who shares buddhism is that by taking on this language we also take on the limitations of various labels if we talk about something like meditation particularly mindfulness of breathing is not something that can open up the mind and actually lead to real dispassion it can lead to ultimate bliss and happiness but rather talk about it as a coping strategy, by taking on that language, we say that that's all that is. That's all meditation could be, which is just a way of coping with life. Which I think ultimately uh, confuses those who are new to Buddhism because they, they come in and then they assume that, ah, Buddhism is synonymous with psychotherapy or is synonymous with the sciences which can be a, a tricky way of talking about Dhamma altogether, the Buddha's teachings. You know, when we use this term Dhamma, and in, in one sense, it can mean the, the truth of things as they are. But the Dhamma can also just mean the, the, the teachings of the Buddha as we have it passed down in various texts, passed down through the mouths of various teachers, most of them monastic, who have dedicated their whole lives to sharing the Dhamma. And in that sense, we have this Dhamma that's, that's shared, that's shared for a particular reason. It's shared for, for the freedom and benefit, the welfare and happiness of all beings everywhere, all sentient beings. To limit it something to something like a coping strategy ends up taking away all that flavor and all of that potential. It becomes something to, to really be concerned about on that level. Because we are, by taking on these definitions, whether they be religious or scientific, we're, we're limiting ourselves. I don't know how many people would be interested, but I have been reading this one book that um, I, I just wanted to share because I think it might be fun for those who themselves are curious about this kind of debate, curious about this, this dichotomy that exists between religious and sci- religion rather and science, I'm trying to figure out if it's even a worthwhile way to think about Buddhism that way. And there's this book that was published by Donald S. Lopez Jr., The Scientific Buddha, His Short and Happy Life. And he talks about that dichotomy, so I wanted to share just a short reading from that to highlight maybe some of the things I'm talking about, and perhaps to help us stay on track with this theme. There is a certain parallel between the old Buddha of the tradition and the new Buddha of science. The Buddha of the tradition is validated by being the last, or more accurately, the most recent, in a long line of enlightened beings who have discovered and taught the same truth. The scientific Buddha is validated not by being at the end, but by being at the beginning, as the perfected person who first discovered truths that lesser men would only learn millennia later. For the Buddha of the tradition to be valid, he must have understood what others had long known before him, or rather, known long before him. For the scientific Buddha to be valid, he must have understood what others did not know and would not know until long after him. Each of these very, each of these visions is profoundly retrospective. Each evinces a deep longing for the primordial. The authority of the Buddha of the tradition derives from the fact that he has simply rediscovered eternal truths that the prehistoric Buddhas had also found. Much of the early literature recounts their lives in more detail than they do his. And the disciples of the scientific Buddha derive deep comfort from the thought that the most modern discoveries, indeed truths yet undiscovered, were known by this ancient Buddha so long ago. And I am grateful for someone like Donald S. Lopez Jr. to even write about this topic, to write about this tension between religion and science as it exists, and to talk about this tension that exists even within Buddhism, not outside, within Buddhism itself, this tension between religion and tradition and science and the kind of secular Buddhism that's becoming popular. To speak from, for myself, from my own perspective, I would say that I choose to stand with, without that entirely, like w- rather outside of that entirely. I think it's important to, to recognize how much the Buddha was critical of getting caught up in a thicket of views, is the way he called it. And so we can sometimes, because of being forced into what I would call a false dichotomy, as if there's only one or the other choice here, when we're forced into that kind of thinking we can end up um trapped and defined we can become entrenched in views if we decide that buddhism is definitively a religion then it can't possibly be compatible or aligned with in any way to science and if we, on the other side, become very secular in our views, and entrenched in those views, then any aspect of Buddhism that feels, even has the, the, the smallest twinge of what we might decide for ourselves is, super, is uh, superstition, will cast aside entirely. And I will admit that I can be sometimes critical of the religious side, but I think more often I'm I'm critical of, of the scientific side. And I perhaps will have a chance to really get into why exactly. On the religious side, I can be a bit critical just because sometimes some of the things that we say about the Buddha as a person or about various, uh, you know, what we might call ontological truths in the religion go so far beyond what seems reasonable that... it it can be a bit of of a pill to swallow. I remember learning recently that in some traditions of Buddhism, they believe that the Buddha in his physical body was so pure and so uh, beyond normal, supernatural, beyond man and God and everything that his smile, if he actually smiled and showed his teeth, would emit uh, rainbows that would go to the heaven realms and go to the hell realms. There's hot hell realms, and his smile would cool down the hot hell realms. And there are cold hell realms, and his smile would warm the hell realms. And then they would also do, in the heaven realms, his smile would release various uh, sutras and discourses. His smile alone would do this, and it would return to his body in some way. And I take that and I go, well, maybe not that. You know, I, I, I can't really find any evidence of him saying anything like that about himself in the suttas. A lot of these things come... Uh, in the commentaries or various other literature, but usually not from him, his own mouth saying these things, as far as we know in the suttas. But then on the other side, you have science that, when, when it talks about Buddhism, comes to very strange conclusions because of the limits of science dealing primarily with the material world. Science-informed Buddhists tend to not give a whole lot of credence to rebirth and multiple lifetimes or really have much use for karma as something that extends beyond this one life. And what can sometimes happen is that you have people who are interested in Buddhism and also interested in science or are scientists themselves and then seek to prove Buddhism through science, which also itself kind of creates a mess, a tangle of things. Recently, I came across uh, an article that was supposed to be big news. It was supposed to be like a, like a round of applause amongst the, the Buddhist world for people who even came across this article because, hey, scientists are finally getting on board with the whole idea of no self. Oh, finally. And we've all been waiting around with bated breath to know if this was true via science. And that can be its own problem, and I'll try to explain why. So science now says, hey, you think there's this concrete person that you are, but you're actually like a series of electrical impulses and chemicals that are flooding the brain at any given time, and all these things are happening in the body, and they're happening well before you're even uh, aware of a choice that you've made, you know, all these things have happened and you just think you're making a choice, but really your body had already decided for you ahead of time. And, like, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's there's stuff happening in the body before it it reaches the consciousness. Uh, in fact, there likely is. But the problem then is that, okay, say that that's that's true. There's no one up here deciding what happens. There's just stuff happening in the body, and then after the fact, the consciousness just, you know comes to the conclusion that a decision has been made. All right. What that means, though, is that it erodes the very idea that we have uh, free will. That we make choices. That we have agency. So, in trying to prove one aspect of Buddhism, the whole idea of not-self or no-self, it completely undermines something that was, I believe, far more fundamental to the Buddha's teachings. Which was that actions matter. Our actions matter that our thoughts matter, that our words matter, that our bodily actions, what we do, our deeds, matter. I, as a, as a Buddhist, believe that that is more fundamental to his teachings than not-self or no-self, anatta. I believe that the action teachings came first, or rather are more fundamental, and then it is based on the importance of what we think, and what we say, and what we do, that he built on the idea of anatha or not-self in terms of what we choose to take on as I, me, myself, mine, because what we think matters. Not that there is this fundamental axiom of no-self and then from that actions matter. Which sounds kind of complicated and timey-wimey and you can see probably why I'm getting my PhD in Religious Studies. But I do think that that is where we start. We start with action. We start with the importance of action, which means we start with the importance of what we think, our choices, our intentions, our volitions, our fabrications, sankharas. And so, with these particular scientists trying to align themselves with Buddhism as its own science, because apparently what we have now is biology, chemistry, and then Dhamma, you know, we have Dharma alongside all the other sciences. By aligning themselves in such a way with Buddhism, supposedly, with the Dharma, supposedly, is that in proving not-self, they undermine the idea that we have any choice or agency. Right? It, it, in, in that has its own effects on karma as well, because if we have no choices that are truly our own, then that kind of lends itself towards determinism. That lends itself towards the idea that things follow a path really without our involvement, or rather very little of our involvement or rather the illusion of our involvement. But the Buddha taught kamma as action. Kamma means action. Which means that when we look at cause and effect, we're not looking at it in in a truly impersonal way as as if we're not involved at all. We're actually looking at it as that, yes, you, what you do, matters more than what you think you are. That's the important part. Which is why I bring it up. And so that's just just one snippet, one little aspect of of the way Buddhism has tried to align itself with science, science has tried to align itself with Buddhism. And so we have these weird situations that pop up where on the one hand, if we are entirely credulous and that we believe everything, we I believe a lot of stories, a lot of stories about the Buddha, a lot of stories about the Dhamma, a lot of stories about the Sangha, a lot of stories about how meditation unfolds. And we might get sucked, sucked into say this kind of cult this guy was leading with his American Buddhism. In which case he had devotees, disciples, giving him thousands upon thousands of, of dollars and, and looking after his every need and you know, just, just being very gullible, let's say, but credulous. On the other hand though, we can, we can make the, the, the other mistake of being entirely incredulous. We can actually cut ourselves off from our full potential And I also think that that's sad, that if we take a completely materialistic uh, take on on Buddhism, what we're left with is just effective coping strategies. We're caught off from what so much of the path the Buddha said could be, certainly as it comes towards the end. Nibbana itself, the Buddha talked about as a state that's beyond phenomena, which means it's beyond space and time. And I can't imagine a world in which Buddhism or rather science will catch up to that where the scientific method and sci- scientific um, tests and equipment and technology will ever get to the point where it can effectively measure or have any input in into anything beyond space and time. That if anything science is very much confined to space and time. Which means that, the, that Nibbana would be entirely unknown in that way, which is also the way the Buddha talked about Nibbana within his own lifetime to his own disciples as something that couldn't be known from without. It was something that was only known by those who had seen Nibbana for themselves. In fact, that's a, that's a part of what the Buddha even meant by ehipasiko, come and see. That you couldn't just take it from his words that Nibbana exists. You couldn't just take it by looking at his disciples that Nibbana exists. That you follow the path and grow in confidence and grow in faith. But you don't know Nibbana exists for yourself until your Dharma eye is opened. That's the way the Buddha talked about it. You see for yourself. Which means that the Dhamma, and certainly following it as a path, is empirical and experiential and phenomenological. But I wouldn't say that that's necessarily scientific and that it is purely dealing with the material. We're definitely looking at something beyond. Beyond. Does that make Buddhism religion in a hard sense? I don't know. I, I think that part of the, the avoidance of thickets of views is avoiding putting Buddhism in a particular box. That it has to be religion, or it has to be science. And I'm not the only one who's tried to, to fiddle with these definitions and look at something a bit more broad. Like a way of life, or a philosophy. And certainly, we can absolutely look at the Dhamma and look at the Eightfold Path as a way of life, as a philosophy, as something put into practice. Whether that makes it a religion or a science in this false dichotomy might just confuse the matter, might just make it more complicated to actually practice the path. Complicated specifically because we get entrenched, which means that we get closed off from potentials that we might have if we had a more broad understanding of what the path of Dhamma is with the Eightfold Path could be for us and certainly where it leads what its ultimate aim is so i think it's important to keep that in mind to ha- to have that broad sense without getting caught up in views without getting caught up in strict definitions in this way so i think that for me going into religious studies i got i got my work cut out you know for me let me tell you because the first thing i said when i came up to someone is like you know i oh yeah i'm getting my phd in religious studies you know i'm really excited to you know study buddhism as as a religion and he goes well it's not really a religion though is it this guy i was talking to you know it's a way of life i'm like okay you know it is a lot of that people ha- people having a strong say on what buddhism definitely is and i'll tell you why these thicket of views that we end up getting are really harmful It's because they slow us down in terms of our progress on the path, because what ends up happening is we get all these messages from various teachers within Buddhism, within different traditions of Buddhism, but also from without people who just have a a kind of a more new agey interest in spirituality, meditation in general, or people completely removed entirely who are only in the scientific realm, looking at various tests that have been done on the mind and meditation and so on and all of these competing voices are coming in and if we take on these views too strongly and become defined by them we are limited by them and nibbana is unlimited and people who achieve nibbana are also unlimited undefined that's what the buddha said that like a fire they are snuffed out and you can't say whether they went north or east or south or west in any direction up or down That you can't even define them in terms of existence non-existence they've gone beyond entirely beyond space and time does that sound religious spiritual i don't know maybe does it sound scientific not really but being stuck between those two arguments feels very limiting to me and i think would be limiting for anyone practicing this path too so to circumvent it entirely is to do what the buddha suggested to step out of the thicket so that we can walk freely down the path we don't want to just get caught up in all the, the, the thorns and thistles and be slowed down. I'll give an example of why, uh, rather I'll give an example of why this matters in the, the long term. There's a sutta where the Buddha talks about uh, archers. He says, all right, disciples, come here. Imagine there are four archers, each in, in every direction, right? So one north, one south, one east, one west. And these archers are going to be firing arrows. Imagine that someone was able to run in each direction and catch their arrows before they even fell to the ground. Would you say that this person is extremely fast, perhaps the fastest person? And the disciples think about it for a while, and they said, even if this guy only ran in one direction and caught the arrows from just one of those archers, he'd be the fastest. And the Buddha says, yeah. But he still wouldn't be faster than the progress of the sun or the moon across the sky. Right, which is true, they're actually moving extremely fast. And he says, even still, he wouldn't be faster than the devas that actually go faster than the sun and moon. And then the Buddha says, and even faster than the devas and the sun and moon and faster than this man and the archers is the progress of one's life. The, in fact, the, the force of one's life going out. How quickly we can die. We can be snuffed out. Boom, gone. And so he says, that's why you should think to yourself, I should practice with heedfulness right now. And so if we get caught up in these kind of arguments and defined by these arguments, limited by these arguments, then we end up spending precious time trying to dig our way out. And so I would say that those Buddhists who are embarrassed by any element of Buddhism that seems religious, or on the other side, embarrassed by any part of Buddhism that seems scientific, needs to throw that embarrassment aside, because it's limiting. And it gets in the way of the practice. So, kind of a big, heady one as I go off into my PhD. I'm sure it'll go probably better in the classroom than it did here, but I hope it's still helpful anyway, as a kind of encouragement. You know, an encouragement to practice right here and right now, without getting caught up in unnecessary debates. To realize that whatever... Views we take on are views that are useful in the ultimate goal of liberation, ultimate bliss, Nibbana itself. So I'll end my talk there. Thank you.